Good morning. Would you bow your heads and pray with me one more time, please? Um, gracious God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that your, your mercies are new every morning. Uh, and so we thank you for this morning. And whether we come here uh, in mourning and grief and facing challenges in our life, or whether we come rejoicing in your work in our lives, God, we, we thank you for this day. Because uh, we, we thank you for your mercy and your grace in our lives. And this morning, especially as we open our Bibles to Acts 2, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who enlivens us and empowers us to, to live the lives that you've called us to live. And Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us on our own, God, but you have given us this precious gift. So Lord, help us uh, as we open your word this morning uh, to see you, uh, to know you better. And uh, by your spirit, Lord, I pray that you would bring uh, conviction where conviction is needed, and encouragement where encouragement is needed, and comfort and challenge where, where those are needed. Uh, we, we're grateful, God, for who you are and for all that you've done for us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I once heard someone say that it takes a strong person to swim against the current, and any dead fish will float with it. Do you ever feel like you're swimming against the current? Um, as Christians, we should all feel this way, living in a world uh, that we live in. Uh, the world we live in is broken by sin and runs contrary to the ways of God. None of us are naturally inclined towards God apart from his redeeming work in our lives. We're naturally inclined towards ourselves and seeking our own good rather than seeking the glory of God or, or seeking the good of others. So it takes a strong person to swim against the current. Are you swimming against the current? Because it's easy to drift like a dead fish and float along with it. We need strength to swim against the current. Yet we must recognize that we don't find this strength from within. I'm not talking about inner strength or even physical strength. As Christians, we have strength far greater than anything this world can provide. As Christians, we have the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, we saw that the Gospel of Luke is what Jesus began to do and to teach. But the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and to teach. And here in Acts 2 that we're going to look at this morning, we learn how Jesus would continue to act and to teach. Last week in Acts 1, we saw that Peter was determined to find another apostle to replace Judas, who had, who had betrayed Jesus and fallen away. Uh, he said that somebody must become a witness with us of Jesus' resurrection. The apostles were called to witness to Jesus' resurrection. And in Acts 2, we discover they were not called to this grand task on their own. Uh, God calls everyone 
who is a follower of Jesus Christ to bear witness to his resurrection. And God gives us the power to do so through his Holy Spirit, and God gives us a person to point to as we bear witness, the person of Jesus Christ. So go ahead, if you haven't already, flip your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. At the beginning of Acts 1, Jesus gave his disciples a mission uh, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But he told them to wait uh, before going out and ministering because the Father was going to give them the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus is exalted to the heavens before their very eyes. Now the disciples are gathered in some place waiting. They know something is coming, but because, just because Jesus told them about it, but uh, Jesus told them to wait, but I'm not sure that they knew exactly what to expect. And then it happened. We read these words already, but I'm going to read them one more time, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like, a, the, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now those of us who have been around the church have become probably too familiar with this passage. So we forget its its radical message and what's happening here. To really grasp it, we need to go back to the beginning of the Bible to see what God's been doing throughout history. And uh, the words of, uh, the work of Tim Mackey has helped me, been helpful to me uh, in kind of giving language to some of this. In Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God created the heavens and the earth. And in the Garden of Eden, we see that the heavens and the earth were one. God's space and human space were one and the same. God and human beings, human beings that says walked with God. Their relationships with God and with one another and with the world around them were in perfect harmony. It was God's intention that heaven and earth continue to coexist like this, but in Genesis 3, something happened that made that impossible. When sin entered the world through human disobedience, the earth became ruined and imperfect. And God's realm is holy and perfect and could no longer coexist with our realm, and heaven and earth were driven apart. And thankfully, God set a plan in motion to bring them back together again. In Genesis 12, God calls a man, Abraham, to be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. God promises Abraham that his offspring will one day defeat evil, that he will be given, uh, given land to call his own, and that through him the whole world would be blessed. It's not until the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, that we see heaven and earth begin to be reunited once again. God wants to dwell with his people, and so he calls the Israelites to build a tabernacle, which is essentially a movable Mount Sinai. You know, Mount Sinai was the place where, where Moses gave the Ten Commandments, and he appeared on this mountain. And at the end, so God's presence would go with them wherever they go through this tabernacle. At the end of Exodus, a cloud covered this tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud was over the tabernacle by day, 
And what was over that tabernacle by night? It was a pillar of fire. Animal sacrifices were used to atone in part for the sins of humankind, creating a sort of clean zone where heaven and earth could meet. And through the proper animal sacrifice, a human being could enter into the presence of God. That's where heaven and earth sort of overlapped for even a moment. Later in the story, King Solomon builds a temple, a more permanent dwelling place for God's presence. And when Solomon dedicates the temple, the text says a fire came down from heaven and it consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now again, animal sacrifices were used to atone for the sins of humankind, creating a clean space where heaven and earth could overlap. Tabernacles and temples and animal sacrifices, all these things were only temporary solutions for reuniting heaven and earth. God's permanent solution was God's own son, Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John uh, says that the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and he tabernacled among us. The person of Jesus was where heaven and earth met. When Jesus prayed, he said to the Father, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then everywhere on earth that Jesus visited, he brought little pieces of heaven with him. Uh, Every time he healed and brought forgiveness and healing and redemption to the people that he interacted with, he brought little pieces of heaven everywhere he went. And then through his life, his resurrection, his death, his resurrection, And exaltation, God created created a permanent access point between heaven and earth. Now here's where Acts 2 comes into the picture. Notice the description of the event. In verse 2, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. It sounds like the filling of the tabernacle and the temple with the glory of God. And then verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Notice here that God's glory doesn't come to rest on a building, but the tongues of fire came down on the individual people who were followers of Jesus. In the New Testament, all this language uh, to talk about the tabernacle or temple that used to be used to describe those things now either describes Jesus himself or of his body, the people of God, his followers. And then notice in verse 5, it says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And then the next several verses describe in detail all of the people groups that were present at this event. God promise, God's promise to Abraham continued to be fulfilled here and throughout the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament as the whole world is blessed through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit. So from these verses, how do we bear witness to Jesus' resurrection like the original apostles? We take little pieces of heaven with us wherever we go, just like Jesus did when he was on earth. Because Jesus continues to take little pieces of heaven and earth with him wherever he goes through his Holy Spirit that is alive in each and every one of us who has surrendered our life to Jesus Christ. 
So as followers of Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are little places where heaven and earth meet, and everywhere we go, we're called to bear witness to his resurrection, spreading the aroma of Jesus Christ wherever we go. We're his ambassadors to our neighborhoods and workplaces, to our schools and our communities. Everywhere we go, we're to bear witness to his resurrection, to declare that his kingdom has come here on earth as it is in heaven. For Moses, in Exodus 33, uh, the presence of God was the distinguishing characteristic of his people. Uh, God's presence set his people apart from everyone else in the world. And so Moses told God, they're you know, ready to enter the promised line. He says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us from this place. We don't want to go. Well, now God's presence lives in every one of us who is a follower of Jesus. So our lives should look different. Our actions, our language, our relationships with others, our desire to serve others and help those in need. We should look distinct and separate. We should be, we should be able to display that God's kingdom has come here on earth as in heaven. And that brings us to the next section of Acts 2. The witness has power, and that power is the Holy Spirit. And that witness also has a person, and this should be obvious, we bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Dallas Willard writes, the function of the Holy Spirit is to move, uh, is first to move within our souls and especially our minds to present the person of Jesus Christ and the reality of his kingdom. And we see that here in Acts 2. Uh, following the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter presents the person of Jesus Christ and the realities of his kingdom to the surrounding crowd. Uh, So skip down to verse 14, and I'll read these verses. Uh, Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Uh, So this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. These are the words of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter tells the crowd that the prophet Joel foretold what they've just witnessed. And notice some of the language that Joel uses. God will not drizzle the Holy Spirit or even shower the Holy Spirit, but he tells them, that, that he tells them that a time is going to come when God will generously pour out the Holy Spirit on all people. And the gift is given to all kinds of people, to men and women, to young and old. The gift of the Spirit is even given to those who are marginalized by society. And in Joel's day, that meant that it was given to servants and women. And Peter says that this time has now come. The time that Joel was speaking about has now come. 
Now, Peter may not have understood the full implications of all people at this moment, as this was a Jewish audience. But he would soon discover that this includes not just Jews, but non-Jews as well, that God's promise to bless the nations through Abraham was in fact coming to fruition. Peter emphasizes that with the coming of Jesus and now the Holy Spirit, the last days have come. Uh, when John the Baptist was baptizing, he said, I, he told the people, I baptize with water, but I, that someone is coming whose sandals I am unworthy to tie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so Peter's saying, that has now come. That time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near through the coming of Jesus Christ and through the gift of his Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus' upside-down kingdom where the poor, the hungry, the mourners, and the righteous are the ones who inherit the earth, not the wealthy, the strong, and the powerful. And it's through his followers, through the Holy Spirit, who represent that this kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven. We, as God's people, the new temple, are these places where heaven and earth meet, where God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven, as we live out our callings as witnesses of the resurrection. We are called and equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit to show the world around us a new way to be human, to show them what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And the prophet Joel makes it clear that this kingdom isn't fully here yet. We all know that. We can look, look around and see that God's kingdom is not fully here yet. In fact, he speaks of a time, a time to come when God will purge this world of sin and evil and that he will bring judgment and, and all of us will face judgment. But Joel tells us that there is a way to be saved. Joel's prophecy makes it clear that it's necessary for all people to seek salvation in the Lord. For verse 22, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, who is this Lord? Well, he tells us. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. One of the primary purposes of Peter's whole speech is to show that Jesus is this Lord. That the Old Testament speaks about. He is the one foretold by these prophecies. Jesus is the name that we must call upon in order to be saved. He is the Messiah that Israel and the whole world has longed for. He is our Redeemer and Savior. In fact, Peter makes clear that everything that's happened to Jesus was God's plan. None of it was an accident, including and especially his death. 
Uh, His Jewish audience would have thought that a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. Anyone who's crucified is quickly forgotten about and tossed aside. He's a loser, a failure. But Peter says that this was all part of God's plan. God is very much in control of the events that are tied to Jesus, and they included a plan of suffering as a part of Jesus' calling. But death could not hold Jesus, Peter says. He says it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Peter goes on to quote Psalm 16 to show that King David foretold of a Messiah who would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead and whose body would not see decay. He goes on to explain this in verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has promised, he has He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter says that David could not have possibly been thinking of himself when he wrote those words in Psalm 16. Uh, David knew that God promised him that he would always have a descendant on his throne, that, that David's kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And Peter says that God raised Jesus to new life, and Jesus is the one that David was talking about there in Psalm 16. And Peter jumps straight from Jesus' resurrection from the dead to his exaltation to God's right hand. And from this place of supreme honor and absolute power, having received the Spirit from the Father, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on his followers. Peter concludes there in verse 36 that all Israel should be assured that this Jesus, whom they mocked and beat and flogged and killed, God made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, they mocked and beat and killed the very Messiah they had been longing for. And the text says that those who heard this message were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sin and conscience stricken. This is God's work in their lives. The people asked Peter and the apostles, what should we do? And Peter replies in verse 38, repent And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. In his message, 
Peter reminded these people that they put Jesus to death, and now this same Jesus offers them salvation. What an amazing God we serve. Peter's call to his audience is the same for us. To to repent means to change your mind, to change your whole direction in life away from sin and towards God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. When you repent and surrender your life to Jesus through faith, you are now united with Christ in his death and life and resurrection, which means you're no longer united with this world. Your fundamental orientation has changed. And if you've truly repented, the the next proper step to take is to declare it to the world. And you do that through baptism, which is an outward declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ through immersion in water. Do this and receive two blessings. The first is the forgiveness of sins. That through Jesus Christ, you can have a new life that begins even today. And the second blessing is the gift we've been talking about today, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's ministry is to take the truths about Jesus and make them clear to our minds and, and, and bring them, uh, make them real to our hearts. The Holy Spirit empowers all of us who are followers of Jesus to live a new life. And because of our union with Christ, when we surrender our lives to him and identify ourselves with his life, death, and resurrection, Through repentance and faith, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead breathes life into us and empowers us to live this new life that he calls us to live. So have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? If you want to know more about what that means, I encourage you to speak to one of our prayer servants after the service. And if you've already surrendered your life to Jesus, then I hope that you see that you are called to be a witness to his resurrection. Then the way that Jesus continues to act and to teach is through the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is alive in you. And God calls all of us to live into the new life that he's given us through Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God who lives in us. And as we step into this new life, we're called to something greater. And we're given the power to live that new life. And the Holy Spirit is that power. He's the the power that fuels our mission to be witnesses of the resurrection wherever God has placed us in this world. And I'll close with this. It takes a strong person to swim against the current. Our kingdom is not of this world, so we need strength to swim against the current of this world. And we find that strength and power in the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Gracious God, we thank you uh, for the power of your word. We thank you for that day of Pentecost. where you did something uh, powerful in giving the Holy Spirit to, to your followers. Lord, that's so that your presence may go with us uh, wherever we go. 
Lord, that you empower us. You not only call us to be witnesses to the resurrection, you not only call us to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, but Lord, you empower us to do that. Lord, you don't leave us on our own uh, to accomplish something on our own strength that can never be accomplished. But instead, you, you fill us with your Holy Spirit that enables us and empowers us to live the very life that you've called us to live. And so, Lord, I pray for us this morning. I, I pray, God, that those of us who are your followers would feel just a fresh filling of your Spirit this morning. Lord, that we would feel alive because of what you have done and continue to do in each of our lives. That the Holy Spirit isn't just some cliche that we talk about, but it is the life and vitality of every follower of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for your personal presence in each of our lives. Lord, help us to live in humility and gentleness. Help us to live lives that reflect who you are and all that you've done for us. Lord, it's in your precious name that we do pray this morning. Amen.